Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Reading the Room, a podcast in which I am joined by a bookish guest to talk about something bookish. I am very excited to have Kaming Chang join me today to talk about her new short story collection, Gods of Want, available when you're watching this today. <laughs> um, there it is. Lovely, stunning cover, must say. Um, <laughs> Kaming is a Lambda Literary Award finalist and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. Kaming, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, so first, to get into the collection, do you mind giving a brief synopsis of what your story collection is about? I know it's kind of hard for story collections to summarize everything going on, but I'm curious to know if you want to give that synopsis. Yeah, so the short story collection is split into three sections, uh, Mothers, uh, Myths, and Moths. Um, and it's kind of encompassed in those sections, but it's a fabulous story collection that's interested in examining matriarchal storytelling, mytho-realism, and kind of the, the entwinement of the mythical and the mundane, um, and about the lives of, of queer women in the diaspora, and kind of encompassed in the title too, Gods of Want. There are a lot of themes of desire uh, collective desire, individual desire, wants that are both kind of like dangerous and exciting and full of potential um, for the characters in this, in this book. I wanted to talk to you first about the three-part structure here. I love when anything introduces like an interesting structure, um, especially in a story collection when it's divided into parts. I do think as a whole, I think, you know, the idea of mothers, myths, and moths is kind of contained in all of them. So it works as a cohesive collection, but it is sort of divided in terms of these ideas of motherhood and myths and ghost stories as well, um, which I really love. So I just want to talk about how you kind of came to that three-part structure for the story collection. Yeah, it actually came really late in the process. <laughs> so it was a bit of a panic for me because for the longest time, not only did I not know the, the order of the stories, and I feel like order in a collection is so important. Um, people kind of compare it to, you know, a record, an album. I, I also didn't even know what stories were going to be in the final collection because I kept swapping things out last minute and having other ideas of what should be in it, what shouldn't be in it. And I was really doubting myself. Um, and it actually came in a much kind of later edit than I think I, I anticipated, where I finally thought about it and I was like, okay, I have all of these repeating M words that I use throughout the story and that I feel like encompass uh, so many of the themes. So things like moons, myths, mothers, moths, memories, uh, migrations. I had so many M words. I think I had like at least a dozen. <laughs> Um, and as I was looking at those words, I, and also there's a recurring character named Melon as well. So that was on there as well. There are a lot of melons and watermelons. I, I started to think about like what stories could possibly gravitate toward what words. It was a very visual process, which is very unusual for me. Um, but I laid out all the stories and I laid out all these M words that I had kind of printed out and snipped out. And I found that mothers, myths, and moths were the ones that the story was kind of like most gravitating toward. And yeah, I played around with having maybe five sections, six sections, but I realized that I really love the triptych form in, in just in life in general. And I was like, oh, this is my chance to have a triptych. Um, but not only that, it's interesting because in Greek mythology, for example, the number three is really, really important. Like there are three theories and like clusters of three gods and three faiths and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And not, I, I don't know a ton about kind of like the mythological significance of three, uh, but I was like, oh, there's something there, I think, about a triptych. 
or a, a pairing of, or not a pairing, but a grouping of three that could be really interesting. Yeah, I loved how it played out. And it's so exciting you, when you get to each part to see how you're going to sort of flex the form of the storytelling. And it was fun to see that progression throughout the entire collection. Um, one thing that I was really excited to talk to you about is something that I've been grappling with personally, like in my own reading, which is this idea of myth and like magical realism. And often when I see, I see certain things like online for books, and I, I tend to see that there's like this idea that a like gold standard or like a metric for good fiction is whether it's realistic or whether it's rooted in some sort of reality. And so I loved reading this to kind of see you play with magical realism and surrealist elements. And so I'm just wondering how in your story collection, when you're crafting something, how do you know sort of like the boundaries of where you want things to go in terms of those surrealist elements? Yeah, I love that question so much. Yeah, I think for me, it always starts in language and it's always rooted and grounded in language for me. So I find oftentimes my magical or surreal elements come out of a metaphor becoming really literal. Um, like there's a story in the book called Eating Pussy that's about eating someone <laughs> in a literal in a literal way, um, like actually like digesting them. And um, so for me, it's a kind of playfulness. Um, it's a way of using wordplay and having fun with the language. And I think treating language and image in a very irreverent way where I can kind of have fun with it. Um, and I think that's where I, I find those boundaries. Um, it's always me wanting to push the language to its farthest point and seeing where it can take me, even if it's not fully logical um, or always fully grounded. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting too, because I think that we tend to, as readers, really think about groundedness and grounding the reader and tethering the reader. And that's something I think about as well. But I realized that so much of what I love to read is actually about the opposite. It's about disorienting the reader. It's about um, kind of in a way being um, like untethering the reader and having this experience that might be a bit different. And that that experience is something that really I really enjoy as a reader. So I think it, it comes out in, in what I'm trying to write. I think that's what excited me so much about this collection was just how in the best way possible I felt challenged by this collection in terms of, you know, kind of being disoriented and wondering where is the story going to go what is what is real what's not those kind of questions that I tend to I love to ask when I'm reading and just see, not knowing where things are going is what I love in fiction as well and one book that sort of introduced me to like my love of short stories last year was um, George Saunders he wrote this book called The Swim in a Pond in the Rain which sort of blends um, Russian short stories with his own like criticism about the form and this one idea in this book is he talks about escalation in short stories and I feel like your stories do this, but you also have this interesting play with not necessarily sticking to like a traditional story structure, which I think was really fun to read. And so I'm wondering, was escalation in a story something that you were thinking about while crafting them? Oh yeah, that's so interesting. Escalation, I really love that word. I think for me, and this is a form of escalation, I think, but again, kind of going back to, to language leading me, I find that an accumulation of images, um, specific words, um, sometimes it's like teeth, or as I said before, melon, something, or, or kind of like a, it's almost like a refrain in a song or a chorus in a song that recurs. I find that when it begins to accumulate, like I feel it coming back again and again and again, um, that's my form of escalation. It's this kind of buildup and accumulation of language and imagery um, that I feel like I find that sense of like, um, that the core of the story, the emotional core of the story, or like the escalated point in the story. Um, and yeah, and I think that's why sometimes my the structure of it is a bit almost more like poetry or or maybe non short story forms. 
um, because it is so kind of so based in language and what words I find recur. It's almost like I feel like there are these elements that are circling the characters, orbiting the characters, and eventually everything kind of gets closer and closer and closer together and more and more melded. Um, and I find that the narrator will kind of confront those elements directly. Yeah, I think the final paragraph, final sentence of your stories always is so succinct in how it captures the sort of raw feeling that you have when you're reading them, which I think is really, I think is beautiful when I read short stories that can do that. That's what I love so much about the forum too, is like the the brevity of being with these characters and having so much, especially in these stories, happen to them. <laughs> that's um, that's a lot often. It's just really fun to see how you kind of resolve and kind of put it put a resolution to those sort of things. And kind of going to that and going to this question of form, you write in many different forms, novels, short stories, poetry. Does your brain kind of change when you're going into each form? Or does it kind of feel similar to you, rooting it in language, I guess? Yeah, I, that's really interesting. I, I feel like when I'm actually in the writing process, it's really, really similar. And I've talked about this before, but Victoria Chang, the poet, has um, she was at this panel and um, at the Bay Area Book Festival, and she said, "Oh, I start with language first, then ideas." Um, and I find that I kind of write in a similar process of language first, and then I'm like, "Oh, this is what I'm writing about." I had no idea that <laughs> that this it would lead me to this place. And I also feel like again, it's that feeling of trying to approach the page with playfulness in the sense that anything is possible, that there are all these infinite possibilities. And I try not to let thinking about like audience or form um, restrict that feeling of possibility and play. And then I find that my understanding of genre and structure and form comes more into play with editorial, uh, with the editorial eye, because that's when I start to think about like, oh, what, what is the literary lineage of this of this piece of writing? Like where, um, how has it been informed by things I've been reading? Um, and what are the, the, what are these writers doing? Um, and in what ways do I wanna kind of like imitate certain structures or think about the way other people have been using this form? Yeah, so it tends to come a lot later and it's usually something I, I am very, it's very difficult for me because <laughs> I think structure and form are, are the hardest things for me <laughs> as someone who just like wants to write in like with no paragraph breaks and no punctuation <laughs> and no no structure whatsoever um that for me is the most kind of challenging part of the process i think you i love that you say that because i feel like you it shows in your writing that you are very much inquisitive i feel like in your writing and, and through what you're discovering through the story writing and i think that's so fun as a reader to kind of see and think about how you crafted these stories. I mean, for me personally, I having this podcast in general and talking to writers is just so like, it still blows my mind because I don't understand how you all do it. <laughs> it's just truly like magnificent. Neither and do I can't. we. <laughs> <laughs> I but the thing is you're able to do it, which is, which is wild. Um, and I love that. But I guess going to this idea of like revision and questioning your own work, how do you know like when a story is done? Oh, that is so, that's such a great question because I had a teacher named Rajput Lapturan Sap who once told me, he was like, oh, he was talking about a friend that was revising a story and how he, that friend didn't know if it was ready. And so kept like changing one word or like two words or like swapping out half a sentence. And he was like, oh, so, you know, so I, I you know, I, I think it was ready or something like that of, along the lines of like, that's when you know <laughs> it's time. But I was like, wait a second, that's all I ever do. <laughs> all I ever do is swap out words because I, I, I'm, I think I'm very intentional about very, very specific micro units of language. And that to me matters more than anything. Like I can spend hours and hours and hours 
trying to figure out one word, <laughs> whether to take it out or remove it. So I was like, for me, that is not the right gauge <laughs> of knowing when something is done, um, because that's who I am as a writer. I'm just so interested um, in the language. Uh, but I think for me, it's, it's when I feel like I'm revising in a way that's removing the mystery from the story, or is almost trying to prune it too much where, cause I, I, I find as a reader, I really enjoy like a bit of, I don't want to say messiness <laughs> um, cause maybe that sounds bad, but I enjoy a sense of mystery, something about it that is a little off kilter um, or is uncontainable or even messy in a way. And I, I really like to preserve that. Cause I think that's, that's so, so much more interesting to me than something that feels like super polished, but there, there isn't that sense of mystery to it. Um, so when I find myself starting to revise in a way where I'm like, okay, I want to explain everything to the reader and I want to make this ending really, really clear and neat and to have like this singular meaning that the reader walks away with. That's what I know. I'm like, okay, I need to step back for a second. <laughs> yeah. I need yeah, that, to have a porousness to the text. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think that's what helps keep story collections like this so um, rereadable as well. Like I'm so excited to go back into these, having some sense of what happens in them, but also trying to, you know, peer deeper into what's going on. And I think you do this really interesting with um, the use of mythology generally. And one question I wanted to ask you about was your examination of queerness through a mythological lens. I believe you said in an interview that you consider, or I'll let, me, I'll let you <laughs> talk about how you consider myths, but I think you said something about how it's sort of um, a collective storytelling that's really interesting to you. So can you just speak to that idea? Yeah, and that, that aspect of myth is something I only recently realized because I think I was looking into the, the form of uh, or the, the academic field of folklorics, um, which I didn't know was like an actual field of study. And I was reading the Wikipedia page for it. And almost immediately within the first few paragraphs, it was talking about how we have this kind of like modern capitalistic idea of intellectual property, um, of stories uh, and belonging to one person and of authorship being this, this kind of singular form uh, or, or singular ownership and um, but that folk, the study of folklore is so interesting because folklore, it's not really something that can be owned, um, can't really be copyrighted in a lot of ways. It's not really intellectual property. And I was like, oh my God, I love this idea of story not as property um, because I think that I'm really interested in that like thematically. And I think that's also what gives me so much permission, I think, to delve into the world of, of myth-making and mythology um, that in some ways these these stories, these myths are being collectively written constantly, generation after generation, um, that they're fully embodied in the way that we, they're, they're oral forms and, and are often like spoken to each other. And I find that it's really interesting because I, I also get a lot of questions often of like, oh, um, how do I feel like I have permission to tell these stories? Or how do I feel like I'm allowed to write these myths? Um, and I just want to be like, that is the point of mythology. That is the point of folklore and these collective stories, that there is no permission needed. They belong to all of us already. And that to me is so freeing and liberating. Connecting it to intellectual property, I, I'm a lawyer and in law school, I was really fascinated by copyright law and this idea of authorship. And so hearing you say that, which is, I, I think it's interesting <laughs> um, from like an intellectual level. But um, also I'm wondering, so in terms of that, like, use of myth and this idea of kind of the lack of rules in that regard how do you blend the more like individualistic aspects of your stories um with the sense of of myth if that makes sense 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think part of it comes from, I think, an interior conversation that the character and often I as the writer am having with a certain myth. That often what what's really interesting is it's the tension, I feel like, or sometimes it's a little bit of a conflict. Sometimes it's a it's a questioning or a curiosity, um, like re relate, related to the myth um, that kind of births something really interesting. It's like the friction between the character and the myth, um, because I think there are so many stories and myths that I, I adore. I love so much. Like I was also recently reading Italo Calvino's like collected book of Italian folktales. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I love these so much. And I was like, maybe I should try to write about some of these. And I realized, oh, it, it's not just a matter of like, oh, choose a myth and write about it. It has to be something that I feel like I'm butting heads against or that I want to challenge or that I, I find is an interesting parallel um, to something in the character's life. But like, there's always a sense of friction with the myth. Um, and I think that is what creates really interesting imagery and also really interesting directions for the character as well, um, where I, I get to play around with how much does this character internalize this myth and how much should they believe it? And what does that say about uh, what they believe about this, themselves in the world? Because um, I think what I love so much about myth as well is it's often on this really grand cosmic scale of like, this is how the world is made. This is what humans are made of. It allows you to go really philosophical, I think, with the characters, because then you get to think about, oh, how is the character seeing the world? Like, what is this character's worldview? Because um, I think myth is ultimately about worldview, oftentimes like a cultural or collective worldview. One thing you do really well, too, is like you you blend or you attach the myth to very corporeal or like bodily um, experiences of the characters to sort of make them, in a sense, sort of tangible, or at least for the reader to kind of see some very disturbing, for lack of a better word, you know, descriptions of what happens to bodies. And so I'm wondering how you lean into like the more disgusting or like um, disturbing aspects of, of bodily functions in your writing and why you're drawn to that. Yeah, it's so funny because it's never something I realize I'm doing. And then my editor will like send me a list of like the number of times I've mentioned poop in a story. <laughs> It'll be like a document. It's like, or, or my agent will do the same. I'm like, this is the amount of times like peeing has mentioned the story. And I'm like, I don't see it. <laughs> like, I don't see it at all. For me, it's there is a sense of wonder in the body uh, as well as like how how grotesque and macabre the body is. And I find that horror and wonder for me are very similarly embodied feelings. Um, and that looking at something really fascinating and looking at something really disgusting often have the same um, complicated feelings of like being both attracted to and repulsed by something. Um, and I really, really enjoy playing around with that and kind of complicating those feelings uh, those feelings that they become one yeah and I find that so much of myth is holding both the sacred and the profane um, and I really enjoy writing about the body as the space of the sacred and also profane because um, I'm like oh that is kind of our existence <laughs> um, and how I that's how I that's how I feel about bodies like so wondrous and also so horrifying um, yeah so I I, I think getting to blur the boundaries between those seemingly opposite things um, is, is really, really revealing for me. Yeah, I love reading all about that. One of my favorite writers is um, Otessa Moshfeg, and she recently gave some interviews about writing into disgust and how she's curious about it and fascinated by it. And I am too. So I love like reading that and seeing an author not afraid. I think it's interesting how you say how you're not, um, at least when you're writing, that you're not too preoccupied with like a reader response or something, um, which I think maybe helps with that. I don't know. Do you think that is the thing? Yeah, because I think I think it helps with 
for me as a reader and I'm mean, a writer as a reader me of other people might experience it differently which I'm totally open to but for me as a writer it doesn't feel sensationalized as I'm writing it on the page because to me it feels kind of naturally part of this character's world um, and also part of their interiority um, even if it's not something that I might share to another character um, the thoughts that this character um, is perceiving about their body or someone else's body I think is part of that like interior mind and fleshing out their um, their interiority. Yeah, and I think also, I feel like it's it's also really interestingly cultural, I think, because I find that in, in my family and in many of the communities I grew up with, you know, talking about the body and talking about bodily functions, especially those uh, you're, you're intimate with um, or that you care about is something very natural and constantly talking about eating and food and ex expelling that food um, and you know digestion um, is so kind of ingrained not only in like the topics of conversation but in just like everyday phrases um, and idioms um, and language uh, so for the characters it's not something that's other like this this idea of the horror of the body or the wonder of the body as being this spectacle or purely the spectacle um, but that it's also just kind of in the fabric of their daily lives. On a similar note, I wanted to ask you about this idea that I think runs through the collection in terms of longing and more specifically queer longing because the title of the collection, um, I have it upside down, <laughs> Gods of Why, <laughs> um, comes from a story all about queer longing. And so I'm wondering how, one, you explore that idea and also how you landed on this for the title. Oh yeah, I love telling the story because I get to talk about like what a genius my editor is because for the longest time, the collection of this, or the story, the title of this collection um, was Resident Aliens, which is the title of one of the stories. And while I did, I did really love that story. And to me, it was kind of like a cornerstone piece of the stories in the way that it examines like collectives of women, uh, strangeness, matriarchy. It just, it didn't feel right. And I was like, oh, but I feel like I have to choose a title of a story from the collection as the title of the collection as a whole, because that's just the convention of storytelling, of, of, of short story collections. Um, so it was another thing that came so late. <laughs> Everything about this collection is like last minute revelations left and right. Um, we were doing edits on, on the story where this title comes from. And there's an image of, of a raccoon with a bottle in its mouth running across a creek. Um, and uh, the, the narrator calls it the God of Want or a God of Want. Um, and my, my editor highlighted it and was like, title, question mark, question mark, as if it were just like an offhand thing and not the like brilliant life-saving move that I desperately needed. Um, and I was like, yes, that's right. And then I, I thought about it and I was like, God of Want, I feel like it's God's Want. Because <laughs> I feel like all of these characters in some way contain something of the divine. And I, I really enjoyed thinking about collectives and collective voice in this collection. So I was like, oh, gods of want. Cause it's not just like the singular kind of divine figure of want. It's that each of them are gods of want in their own way, both in ways that are terrible and good. <laughs> yeah, and I think in terms of thinking about queerness and desire, um, kind of similarly to that idea of, of like, of feeling repulsed, but also attracted to something. I find that that is often like embedded in a lot of like queer coming of age narratives. And I was really interested in this idea of, of feeling things simultaneously, um, of feeling both repulsed by and attracted to something. And also what's really interesting is um, the writer Garth Greenwell at a talk once, um, we were talking, I think the topic of the panel, I was an audience, I wasn't, I don't know why I said we, like I'm just there <laughs> casually talking to Garth Greenwell, did not happen, um, but on the panel, um, they were talking about shame and he was saying 
that he actually wants to write into shame and towards shame. And he said the most mind blowing thing I had ever heard, which is he said, shame is a very productive emotion. And that actually what's wrong is that some people should feel more shame. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's so good. Because to me, I'd always thought that I was writing against shame. I thought I was always, and you know, there is this narrative of pride, which is the opposite of shame. And this idea that you have to disavow shame and that shame is this thing that has to be kind of cut out of your life and erased and eliminated. And I find that in writing, um, these very complicated characters writing into shame and toward shame and coming out of it at the other end is something really, really interesting. Um, so I find oftentimes uh, writing into the desires and wants of these characters allows me to write into things that I might not want to <laughs> or may want to avoid. Yeah. Yeah, this idea of holding those things together in one story and trying to balance those ideas through to some some end in terms of how a story necessarily needs to end somewhere. Um, it's really interesting to think about how you crafted that through this collection, thinking back on it. And yet Garth Greenwell, he is a genius, yes. <laughs> in my <Yes>. opinion. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching one of his interviews, I think it was with Carmen Maria Machado, and I cried. I was bawling, watching my laptop, <laughs> um, and just thinking about his work and how he talks about those things. It's really interesting on what what I love so much about queer fiction, just the importance of these stories. So what is the oldest story in the collection and what's the, the, the newest? Oh my God, I love this question. <laughs> this question is so great. Um, the oldest, oh, this is so funny because it's just, it's kind of mind blowing. The oldest story is actually the last story, which I find really interesting because typically you would think like the last one would be the newest one maybe, but it's Meals for Mourners, that's the oldest. Um, and then the newest one is actually probably, I think it's actually a flash piece. Uh, because I think recently I'm more and more interested in flash. Um, so, oh, it's homophone. It's homophone, uh, which is a flash, a flash story. Uh, yeah, so it's really interesting. They they kind of ended up in in neighboring sections, but the the oldest one is last, which is so so fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm always curious to hear how how it all comes together and how long like or when a writer's putting together a collection, like when they're looking at older pieces, like do you, when you're revising those stories, do you tend to change a lot? Like when it's closer to like the deadline of when you need to submit this or does it kind of, the older it is, the more it's kind of set in its, in its way? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think, I think my instinct as a writer is I never, I always want to write, I always want to include what I just written because I find that I have my kind of like life, life fan of of liking a story that I've written is extremely short I'm like two weeks later I'm done with it no more please don't don't show me <laughs> like it's terrible I don't want to look at it but what's really interesting with short stories is that I find that I kind of return to them almost like poems where I am really like hyper fixated on the language and I find that there is something open-ended about short stories that I really really love so for me with older stories when I return to them kind of with a question I know that they're still alive for me um, and that they can that they should be included in the collection. And if there are older stories where I don't really have a question about them, or there isn't something that's kind of like bothering me or lingering about it, I'll return to it and be like, oh, you know, I'm glad I wrote it and it's published and it's fine, but I won't feel this need to kind of go and like pick at it or work work with it. Yeah, and it's really interesting because Meal for Mourners, Meals for Mourners, which is the last story and the oldest story, is, was actually the first short story I'd ever written. I want to say like I've written essays um, and nonfiction like longer form nonfiction, but I think that was the first time I was like, I'm gonna write a short story <laughs> in the tradition of short stories. And it was directly inspired by um, a short story by Dorothy Allison um, called, uh, called River of Names in her short story collection, Trash. 
Um, and that story completely blew my mind. And I think reinvented what I thought was possible in, in short stories, um, where it was this, this litany um, of characters and there was so much telling in them, but like almost no scene. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to write. Like, that's a form that feels really right to me. And I, I really want to be in conversation with that story. Um, so I think that's another thing with older stories that I really love to work on is they're often like directly inspired by a short story that I love so much. And I think that is what kind of buoys me during the editorial process, because I, I can be like, oh, I'm sick of this and I'm sick of my own writing. But it's almost like fan fiction for this other story that I love so deeply. <laughs> and I want to continue to play with it and see what connections I can draw between this story and like my own literary lineage. That's so fun to hear. Like you talk about influences and stories that stick with you and how they inform your own craft. And one question I had for you was, do you have like a favorite or many favorite story collections or short story writers that you constantly go to? Oh, I have so many. Um, I think the first one that's coming to mind, especially because I'm really interested in the flash form and I feel like I'm more and more writing into like these micro forms, um, is a story collection called Black Jesus and Other Superheroes by Vanita Blackburn. Um, and she also has another collection called How to Wrestle a Girl. Um, and I, I love it uh, for all of the like kind of just so brilliant, so wild um, flash pieces and then also longer stories as well. But I feel like she as a writer is someone who I look to when I'm thinking about possibility, like what is possible in storytelling. Um, she has this one story about like a reincarnating lover <laughs> who like begins as a dog. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, that is so incredible. Like, I just love how like philosophical and metaphysical it can get. And then another st story collection um, actually from my same publisher, Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Amstein. Um, and what I love, love, love about that collection is kind of the women-centricness of, of that story, of that story collection um, and how it, writes about kind of lineage and violence, but with such care for its characters. Yeah, and definitely, there are definitely others. Oh, oh, uh, Trash by Dorothy Allison, which I just talked about. <laughs> um, but I love that story because, that story collection, because it's so wild. And again, it has that sense of mystery that I love so much, where you'll get these, these uh, short stories. And then there's like this piece of erotica. There's a story called Demon Sex. <laughs> and it's, supernatural and it's strange and it's like pure straight up erotica and I love it so much like there's just something so um again like genre bending like boundary listness of it um that I adore going to like flash fiction like I know Vanita Blackburn she has a story that's like a crossword puzzle <laughs> um which is really cool to like I don't know I feel like short the short form namely flash is a really fun way to try something that might not work in a longer form or just being able to play a little bit which is fun and Sabrina and Karina that one's actually it's on my TBR I also want to read um, Woman of Light I'm really excited about that it just came out yeah so thank you for those recommendations and how do you feel about press and talking about your own work oh oh my god this is uh, this is such a fun question because I, I think it's like constantly shifting for me I don't know I find it really exhilarating in a lot of ways where afterwards I'm like oh my god I just I just got to talk about this this work that is existing in other people's minds. It's kind of mind blowing. I'm like, how did you how did you know that? I'm like, oh wait a second, it's published now. And at the same time, I think it it does involve like a different part of my mind. And I find that it's really difficult for me to read and write while I'm also like talking about an existing work in the world. It's almost like I'm tapped into a different frequency. Um, and there's this kind of um, loudness of of talking about this that. It makes it difficult for me to return to the page. 
Um, so I find that it's, yeah, there's like these two modes that I'm, I'm switching between. Um, and yeah, I think for the most part, it's just really exciting. And I'm always filled with a lot of gratitude um, because it's, it just, to me, it's kind of unbelievable <laughs> um, that people are actually reading it and that it exists physically out in the world. Yeah, it's, it's constantly, I think it's such a fluid, it's such a fluid thing. I find that it also like it influences how I see my own work in subtle ways as well. Um, it's usually like someone will bring up, oh, this is my favorite story in the collection. And in my mind, I'll have gone in thinking, oh, that was like the worst story ever. <laughs> or I'm really not proud of that one. Uh, I only like these two stories in my collection, which is usually how I, how I operate. I'm always like, I only like these two chapters <laughs> or these two sentences that I wrote. And then I, realizing that every single person has a different favorite or has a different aspect, aspect that resonates with them is so comforting. I think it's such a relief because I'm like, I'm, I'm so glad it's not, it's not just like a number of me's reading this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that must be a beautiful experience. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to writers about their work and just knowing how it touches um, different readers in a very individualistic way of how people are going to respond to things. And so I'm always curious to know how writers think about talking about their own work and also just to thank every writer that I speak with because I know, I don't think... I'm sure it's different for every writer, but I know it's probably sometimes not the most exciting thing or it is work in a sense of, you know, needing to like be able to talk about your work in a way that helps sell the book or, or whatever. And I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time. And um, it just means a ton to me because I, I hold so much gratitude for writers and I admire writers so much. And so I don't know. Thank you for <laughs> for doing this. Thank you. I yeah, it's such an honor. And yeah, getting to hear such thoughtful um, and wonderful and, and intentional questions about my book is just again, it's always so mind blowing. So I feel so much gratitude. Um, yeah, to you for for generating these questions for reading with such thoughtfulness. Um, it's really, it's always like beyond what I can imagine. And that's why I feel like I have such difficulty like articulating <laughs> um, what a wild and amazing feeling it is because it is just so beyond like my realm of, of imagining when I'm actually working on something. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's beautiful possibilities. <laughs> and I guess the last question I always ask every writer is it's a three-parter. It's just book recommendations. So it's not only like in the short form, I guess. So the first question is, do you have anything recently that you've read that you really love? Oh, that's so exciting. I really, really love this book, Jawbone by Monica Ojeda. Um, it's, I love horror and it's really, really queer and really, really strange, um, which is all of my favorite elements. The book I'm reading right now is called Solo Dance by Lee Kotomi. Um, and she's a lesbian Taiwanese writer um, uh, writing in Japanese and it's been translated into English and that's always really exciting. And let's see, what else have I been reading? Um, oh, one of my go-to recommendations is Ghost Force by Pik Shuen Feng. Um, she's also a One World author. Um, she's also in my my <laughs> my dedication because I have my writing group in my dedication <laughs> in oh, this book. Um, and another writer in my writing group who has a book out um, is uh, Kyle Lucia Wu has a book called With Me Something, which is also so such a beautiful book. Um, and she's also in my writing group. Yeah, those are those are my recommendations. I'm sure as soon as I'm done, I'm like, oh, I had so many more <laughs> that I wish <laughs> I said, which is like the curse of <laughs> of reading multiple things at once. <laughs> No, no worries. Uh, Ghost Forest is the one with the gorgeous, like, lime green cover, right? Yes. I mean, One World always, like, yeah. just an absolute slay They're coming of through covers. with these covers. I know. <laughs> like,
like oh my gosh yeah and Sabrina and Karina that cover too is is really iconic to me I love that cover (laughs) yes absolutely um so I guess two more questions one is is there a book that you're looking forward to this year that's coming out soon in a similar note where do you like go to for like book recommendations or like who influences you like are you influenced by like bookstagram booktube or is it more so like friends I'm just always curious to know how writers find what they pick up next yeah that's a good Good question. I think the book I'm most excited for is a book called Dogs of Summer um, that, that's coming out. I'm really excited about that one. Um, yeah, and then in terms of recommendations, uh, I do, I am on Instagram. So I do love um, like seeing, especially lists are really fun. Like I follow electric literature and they always have like, you know, 10 books by, you know, women in translation, you know, 11 books by, um, and I love those lists <laughs> deeply. I'm like, yes, I'm swiping every single one of those posts. Um, so following a lot of literary magazines is really, is really wonderful because it's like a combination of getting reading recommendations and also getting to read short pieces that other writers are writing and publishing, which is really fun for me. Um, and I also love Bookstagram as well and Booktube too. Um, like, I feel like I've probably been subscribed to the same Booktube channel since I was like 13 years old, <laughs> uh, which is really, really fun to like see other people grow up on YouTube, which is like such a such an amazing phenomenon <laughs> where I'm like, oh my God, you're an adult now. Oh wait, so am I. <laughs> Um, and you have no idea who I am, but I've just watched your entire, like entire adolescence and adulthood. <laughs> um, yeah. And definitely friends as well. Like my writing group who this book is dedicated to has been really, really important to me. And we, in our writing group also do kind of book clubs where we, um, choose a book together and read it, um, and discuss it in a very low stakes way, which is really fun. Nice. Yeah. That's. And it's something about book community that I've been loving so much, like since joining, like in 2019, I would say, like, I've always read my whole life, but um, I've really got into it more like voraciously um, in the last like three years, which has been really fun to find that community. And you're right, like following people for such a long period of time, like there's people that I watched before I joined BookTube. And then now like I've talked to them like on Zoom and stuff. And it's just like so cool to finally make those connections now. But um, that's awesome to hear that writers also like watch <laughs> those things too. I don't know why I like am thinking of writers like a different group of people but yeah, um I yeah. don't know <laughs> no no I love book too because it's it's oftentimes so conversational which I love like I, I as much as I love getting reading recommendations from publications there is something very very um it goes through all these gates like there's so much gatekeeping and what I love about booktube is that there isn't that same sense of gatekeeping um and it feels like oh you can kind of have this like ongoing conversation um, and, and the openness, I think, open-endedness about it that I love. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. It's all the questions that I have. I could talk to you forever, <laughs> um, but I'll keep it there. Everyone, Gods of Want is available today. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's so good. I'll leave a link below in the description to purchase. And yeah, thank you again, Kaming. It was a lovely conversation. And yeah, just thank you infinitely. <laughs> so much. I was so excited when this uh, interview request was landing in my inbox. I was like, oh my God, yes, finally, <laughs> I would love to like say hello to the booktube community <laughs> and get to speak with you. You're such a thoughtful reader um, and just have, you always have so many amazing thoughts um, and just read in a way that I feel like is the dream of every writer. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just, it's really incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. That just made my entire day. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Bye, everyone. I'll catch you all in the next one. And yeah, thank you.